Chapter 19 of Bertram Cope's Year. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. Bertram Cope's Year by Henry Blake Fuller. Chapter 19 Cope Finds Himself Committed. Amy Leffingwell, having written once, found it easier to write again, and having strolled along the edge of the bluff with Cope on that fateful Sunday, she found it natural to intercept him on other parts of the campus, where their paths might easily cross, or to stroll with him, after casual encounters carefully planned, through sheets of fallen leaves under the wide avenues of elms just outside. Her third note almost summoned him to a rendezvous. It annoyed him, but he might have been more than annoyed, had he known of her writing, rather simply, to a rather simple mother in Fort Lodge, Iowa, about her hopes and her expectations. Her mother had, of course, heard in detail of the rescue, and afterward had heard in still greater detail, as the roseate limelight of idealization had come to focus more exactly on the scene. She had had, also, an unaffected appreciation, or several, of Cope's personal graces and accomplishments. She had heard, lastly, of Cope's song to her daughter's obligato, a duet in vacuo, since Carolyn had been suppressed and the surrounding company had been banished to a remote circumference. What wonder that she began to see her daughter and Bertram Cope in an admirable isolation, and to intimate that she hoped, very soon, for definite news. Well, not a few of us have met an Amy Leffingwell, some plump-faced, pink-cheeked child with a delicate little concave nose not at all strong, and a fine little chin none too vigorously molded, and a pair of timid, candid blue eyes shadowed by a wisp or so of fluffy hair, and have not always taken her for what she was. She wouldn't hurt a kitten, we say and we assume that her striking out a line for herself is the last thing she would try to do. Yet such an unimpressive and disarming façade may mask large chambers of stubbornness and tenacity. Amy knew how long and hard she had thought of Cope, and she asked for some evidence that he had been thinking long and hard of her. She desired a response. But in fact... He had been thinking of her only when he must. He thought of her whenever he saw himself caught in that flapping sail, and he thought of her whenever he recalled that she had taken it on herself to select his songs. But he did not want her to make out-and-out out demands on his time and attention. Still less did he want her to talk about happiness. This had come to be her favorite topic, and she discoursed on it profusely. He was almost ungracious enough to say that she did so glibly. Happiness, that conventional bliss toward which she was turning her mind as they strolled together on these late November afternoons, was for him a long way ahead. How furnish a house, how clothe and feed a wife, at least until his thesis should be written and a place with a real salary found in the academic world. How, even, buy an engagement ring, 
that costly superfluity. How even contrive to pay for all the small gifts and attentions which an engagement involved? Yet why ask himself such questions? For he was conscious of a fundamental repugnance to any such scheme of life, and was acutely aware that, for a while at least, and perhaps for always, he wanted to live in quite a different mode. Amy's confident assumptions began to fill the house, to alter its atmosphere. Medora Phillips, who had begun by raising her eyebrows in light criticism, now lowered them in frowning protest. She had found Cope charming, but this charm of his was to add to the attractiveness of her house and to give her a high degree of personal gratification. It was not to be frittered away. Still less was it to be absorbed elsewhere. Hortense, who had been secretly at work on a portrait sketch of Cope in oil, and rather despising herself for it, now began to make another bold picture in her own mind. She saw herself handing out the sketch to Cope in person, with an air of high bravado. She might say, if bad came to worse, that she had found some professional interest in his color or in his planes. On one occasion, Medora heartily requisitioned Cope for an evening at the theater in the city. Miles in and miles back she had him in her car all to herself. And if Amy, next day, appeared to feel that wealth and organization had taken an unfair advantage of simple, honest love, Medora herself was troubled by no strings of conscience. The new atmosphere reached even Foster on the top floor, and when, one evening in mid-December, he finally carried out his long-meditated plan to dine with Randolph, the household situation was uppermost in his mind. That he had not the clearest understanding of the situation did not diminish his interest in it. Though he sat in the dark and far apart, some sense all his own, cultivated through years of deprivation, came to his aid. Peter brought him down the street and round the corner, and Randolph's Chinaman, fascinated by his green shade and his tortuous method of locomotion, once out of his wheeled chair, did the rest. "'You had better stay all night,' Randolph had suggested, and he was glad to avoid a second awkward trip on the same evening. Foster had wondered whether Cope would be present. He had not asked to meet him, for he hardly knew whether he wished to or not. Though this was an occasion, and his, he had left Randolph to act quite as he might choose. There was a third chair at table, and Randolph delayed dinner ten minutes while waiting for it to be filled. "'Well, let's go in and sit down,' he said presently, with a slight twist of the mouth. He spoke lightly, as if it were as easy for Foster to sit down as for himself. But Foster got into his place after a moment, and contrived to spread his napkin over his legs. "'I expected Bertram Cope,' Randolph went on. "'But he isn't here, and I have no word from him, and do not know whether—' He paused, obviously at a loss. "'Not here?' repeated Foster. "'Is there, then, one place where he is not?' "'Why, Joe—' "'Our house is full of him!' Foster burst out raucously. 
he had removed the green abajour, for the candle-shades, as they sometimes will, were performing their office. In the low but clear light his face seemed distorted. He rises to my floor like incense. The very halls and stairways reek with his charms and perfections. "'Well, you escape him here,' said Randolph ruefully. "'The whole miserable place is steaming with expectation, "'with the deadly aroma of a courtship going stale. "'I can't stand it. I can't stand it. "'Courtship?' "'You may think it takes two, but it doesn't. "'That foolish girl has thrown the whole place into discomfort and confusion, "'and I don't know who's for or who's against.' "'What foolish girl?' asked Randolph quickly. Sing Lo was at his elbow, changing plates. It was assumed, justly enough, that he would not be able to follow the intricacies of a situation purely occidental. "'Our Amy,' replied Foster, with a dash of bitterness. "'Amy Leffingwell?' asked Randolph, still more quickly. Foster had blind eyes, but alert ears. He felt that Randolph was surprised and displeased, and indeed his host was both. That boy fallen maladroitly in love, thought Randolph. It was a second check. He had exerted himself to show a friendliness for Cope, had expected to enjoy him while he stayed on for his months in town, and had hoped to help push his fortunes in whatever other field he might enter. He had even taken his present quarters no light task, all the details considered, to make Cope's winter agreeable, no less than his own. And now? First, the uncounted-upon friend from Wisconsin with whom Cope was arranging to live. Next, this sudden unexpected affair with that girl at Medora's. Did the fellow not know his own mind? Could he formulate no hard and fast plan? Here Randolph, in his disappointment, inconsistently forgot that a hard and fast plan was largely his real annoyance and grievance. Then he remembered. He looked at the vacant place, and tried for composure and justice. "'I shall probably hear some good reason in due time,' he said. "'I hope so,' rejoined Foster. "'But it takes these young fellows to be careless and ungrateful.' He made no pretense of ignoring the fact that Randolph had moved into this apartment more on account of Cope than for any other reason. "'Hm, yes,' responded Randolph thoughtfully. "'I suppose it is the tendency of a young fellow who has never quite stood on his own legs financially to accept about everything that comes his way, and to accept it as a matter of course.' "'It is,' said Foster." "'I know that I was that way,' continued Randolph, looking studiously at the nearest candle-shade. "'I was beyond the middle twenties before I quite launched out for myself, "'and any kindness received was taken without much question and without much thanks. "'I presume that he still has some assistance from home.' "'He dropped youthful insouciance over favors received to consider the change "'that marriage makes in a young man's status.' I wouldn't go so far as to assert that a young man married is a man that's marred. This is stiff doctrine, Foster acknowledged. 
but somehow he does seem done for. He is placed. He is cut off from wide ranges of interesting possibilities. He offers himself less invitingly to the roving imagination. Meanwhile, Cope, with Randolph's invitation driven altogether from his mind by more urgent matters, was pacing the streets through the first snow flurries of the winter, and was wandering, rather distractedly, just where he stood. Precisely what words, at a very brief yet critical juncture, had he said, or not said? Exactly how had he phrased, or failed to phrase, the syllables which constituted, perhaps, a turning point in his life? Amy Leffingwell had demanded his attendance for one more walk that afternoon, and he had not been dexterous enough, face to face with her, to refuse. She had expressed herself still more insistently on happiness, on hers, his, theirs. The two were one, in her view. And on a future shared together. In just what inadequate way had he tried to fend her off? Had he said, I shall have to wait? Or had his blundering tongue said instead, We should have to wait? Or even worse, we shall have to wait? In any event, he had used that cowardly, temporizing word, wait, for she had instantly seized upon it. Why, yes, indeed, she was willing to wait. She had expected to wait. He turned out from an avenue lighted with electric globes, past which the snowflakes were drifting, and entered a quieter and darker side street. In the dusk, she had put up her face, expecting to be kissed, and he, partly out of pity for the expression that came when he hesitated, and partly out of pure embarrassment and inexpertness, had lightly touched her lips. That had sealed it, possibly. He saw her sitting in rapt fancy in her bedroom, if not more vocal in the rooms below. He saw her writing to an unseen mother in a tone of joyful complacency and looking at her finger for a ring which he could not place there. He saw the distaste of his own home circle to which this event had come at least a year too soon. He saw the amazement, and worse, of Arthur Lemoyne, whose plans for coming to town were now all made and to whom this turn would prove a psychological shock which might deter him from coming at all. But most of all, he saw, and felt to the depths of his being, his own essential repugnance to the life toward which he now seemed headed. What an outlook for Christmas! What an unpleasant surprise for his parents! What opportunity in Amy Leffingwell's holiday vacation at Fort Lodge to reinforce the written page by the spoken word! Still forgetful of his engagement with Randolph, he continued to walk the streets. He turned in at midnight, hoping he might sleep, and trusting that morning would throw a less sinister light on his misadventure. Long before this, Joseph Foster had been put to bed by Sing Lo in this spare room. It was Foster's crutch, rather than a knightly sword, which leaned against the door jamb, and it was Foster's crooked members, rather than the straight young limbs of Cope, which first found place among the sheets and blankets 
of that shining new brass bedstead. End of chapter 19 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista